This morning's reading is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 23. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles of dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in abundance. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, even if now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that, that though perishable, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. For you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that was to be yours made careful search and inquiry, inquiring about the person or time that the Spirit of Christ within them indicated when it testified in advance to the sufferings destined for Christ and the subsequent glory. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in regard to the things that have now been announced to you through those who brought you good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If we invoke as father the one who judges all people impartially according to their deeds, live in reverent fear during the time of your exile. You know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the ages for your sake. Through him you have come to trust in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are set in God. Now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth so that you have genuine mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart. You have been born anew, not of perishable, but of imperishable seed, through the living and enduring word of God. Amen. One of the lessons that I have learned uh, at various citizens' events, particularly getting involved in planning them, is that one of the crucial moments is the call to action. It's all very well, isn't it, getting people in the room, but what are you supposed to do next? 
Did you notice there was a call to action in our reading this morning? In the middle of all that wonderful theology, there we had it in verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Or to paraphrase it in the New Simon Woodman version of the Bible, this stuff doesn't happen by accident. If you want to see the world made differently, it takes thought and preparation and action. If we just sit on our hands, I don't think it's going to happen. But part of the problem that I am observing, I think, within Christianity is that too many people are just sitting on their hands. Or, perhaps even worse than that, they're taking action to wall themselves off from the society beyond themselves because the society out there is scary or uncertain or unholy. And I observe Christian communities throwing up walls, metaphorically you understand, but, but just as real for that, ideological walls, to say we're in, we're safe, we're secure, we're the saved, holy, sanctified ones. And there's a certain strength in that. You know, I get it, there's a certain security in that. I do get it. We were talking on the way in when Sandy turned up in a, in a beautiful hat about the time where there were churches that said if a woman didn't have a hat on, she couldn't come into church. Well, that's a sort of identity marker, isn't it? You know that you're right, and there's a very visible sign of what it is to belong or not belong. And the, the people who uh, do their work around societal shifts have talked for about the last 30 years about the fact that our society in the West has moved from uh, what they called modernity into what they have called post-modernity. This has been, began really after the Second World War, um, but has been fueled by the rise in information technology and the internet as the old established ways of making ourselves feel secure have crumbled around us. And those of us who are living through a time of great social shift such as this can end up with a sense that the world they knew, the world they felt safe and secure in, is slipping away, slithering and sliding beneath you as the things that you thought were certain are no longer the case. And just think about the last few years. The upheavals of the pandemic, the outplaying of which I think we're only just beginning to see whether that's economically or a very real cost in terms of mental health for people. To the war in Ukraine, to the shifting sands of our national politics, to the decline in church attendance in all the major denominations. I find myself wondering what happened to the old certainties. And if I'm not careful, I find myself longing nostalgically 
for those different days, when you knew on what basis you stood where you stood and what it meant for your place in the world. Well, I'm afraid that for now at least those days have gone. They've been disappearing for a while. The train of Western culture has pulled out from the station of modernity and it has left some people stranded on the platform, not sure about what's happening next, looking with confusion or envy or derision at those comfortably riding this train of society away, leaving them behind. And long established political convictions are being recast, treasured religious orthodoxies are being questioned, both from within the church as well as from without. And it can all seem very disorientating. And then there's politics, as Harold Macmillan may have put it, events, dear boy, events. Well, just week, the Prime Minister resigned, or has he? And once again, the ruling party engages its Darwinian system to choose yet another leader for me that I certainly didn't vote for. But even when we do eventually get to vote again, who should we vote for and on what issues? The question of party allegiance versus identity or single issue politics. Should I vote Labour again because I'm a member of the Labour Party and have been for 20 years? Or should I now be voting Green because I'm so passionate about addressing the climate crisis? You will have your own version of that to work out. The middle ground gets less certain, the extremes get more attractive and stronger. The world has turned on its axis and we are no longer where we once were. And no amount of hoping or campaigning, I'm afraid, is going to turn it back. I refer you to the comments I made last week about the Baptist Union continuing to tear itself apart over issues of human sexuality. No amount of wishful thinking is going to undo the progress that has been made in inclusion but some people are going to try. So, what does it mean for you and me to be followers of Christ in this changing and uncertain world? What does it mean to seek the path of faithful discipleship when all the paths have moved and the signs have been taken down? How are we to locate and relate our faith within a society that sometimes seems so far removed from the society that we want to live in? I sometimes feel like an alien and exile in my own land. London citizens captures this conundrum in their mission of turning the world as it is into the world as it should be. And this desire to take action, to prepare our minds for action, this desire to make the world a better place, to build justice in an unjust society, is something that we find in this little book called One Peter, from which our reading came this morning. Graham Stanton, one of the uh, great New Testament scholars of the last century, describes this book as one of the finest literary and theological writings in the New Testament. 
I have a story about Graham Stanton. He was from New Zealand. He taught New Testament at King's College London and Cambridge University. And uh, many years ago now, when Simon Perry, late of this parish, uh, was chaplain at Fitzwilliam College, Cambridge, Graham Stanton was in the congregation, a part of the congregation. And Simon got me up to preach for chapel. And thankfully, he didn't tell me until afterwards that the very nice smiley man sat on the front row was Graham Stanton, because I think otherwise I might have not been able to get a word out. But back to 1 Peter. It's one of those books that it's very easy to overlook. Just concentrate maybe on a couple of the more famous passages, which is a shame because I think it has much to say to us about what it means to live lives of faithful discipleship in the midst of uncertain and unjust times. So this little book, which we call 1 Peter, was probably written towards the end of the first century probably written from Rome to be circulated around a group of churches in Asia Minor. So Andrea, could we have the uh, map just for a moment? This is just giving you a little bit of historical context because you know me, I always love a bit of historical context. Um, at the beginning, and well done to Linda for articulating these so, uh, so beautifully, it lists Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia as the areas it's written to. So if that helps you locate, it's kind of northern Turkey area, you know, on the south coast of the Black Sea. Um, and the ordering that um, the letter begins with probably gives us a clue as to what's going on with this letter. Um, as with the, the list of churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation, if you take them in order, they kind of prescribe a circular journey around. And the author would have written this letter and then sent it with a messenger and the messenger, messenger would have taken it around the major cities in the area, reading it out, leaving a copy in one of those cities before moving on to the next one, engaging with this series of little small congregations, probably meeting in someone's house at that point. Okay, we can lose the map now, but I just think it's sometimes helpful to locate these texts within a real historical context. Um, the first verse gives its author as Peter, an apostle of Christ, and traditional church teaching has suggested that this should be taken at face value and that what we have here are the written words of none other than Simon Peter, disciple of Jesus himself. Well, maybe. It would be wonderful if that's the case. Um, scholars, however, suggest that there are good reasons for thinking uh, this letter might more credibly be an example of what is known as pseudonymity. Uh, this is an established practice in the ancient world. Writing a letter as if it came from an already dead person of note or importance. This isn't the same thing as deceit or forgery, of course, uh, because if the person is already known to be dead, then no one uh, suddenly getting a new letter carrying their name is going to think it's really from them, writing from beyond the grave. It's best to think of it as a literary exercise kind of what this person might have said if they were still alive today. And we have plenty of examples of pseudonymous letters in the New Testament, certainly to Peter, probably some of Paul's letters, like 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. And it's probably best that 1 Peter fits into this category, written in the tradition of Simon Peter, but probably, regrettably, not by him. Anyway, we do know it's written from Rome because it signs off at the end with a greeting from the church in Babylon. And we know that in the early church, 
Babylon was used as a kind of cipher or code for Rome. Again, we get the same thing happening in the book of Revelation. And interestingly, this tradition of naming the oppressive empire as Babylon is still with us today. You may have come across it. In Rastafarian tradition and music, you often find them, if you've listened to your Bob Marley carefully enough, using the term Babylon to refer to those human governments and systems in our time, which the tradition wants to name as being in rebellion against God. And in the first century of which one Peter comes, from which one Peter comes, something similar was taking place. The story of the ancient Jewish exile in Babylon from six, seven hundred years earlier was used to describe the relationship between the people of God and their ruling empire of Rome. So rewinding six or seven hundred years within the Jewish story the Babylonian exile had been a defining moment. Jerusalem had fallen to the invading army of Babylon and a significant swathe of the population had been taken into exile. And it was whilst the Jews were in Babylon, separated from their promised land, knowing their temple had been destroyed and their king had been murdered, it was then that they developed a form of Judaism that could survive even when dislocated from the land of Israel itself. It was in Babylon that a lot of what we call the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, was written down and shaped as we know it now. In other words, it was in exile that the Jews learned how to be the faithful people of God in exile. And it's this insight which the writer of 1 Peter takes and applies to the people of the congregations he's writing to in the late first century. For these early Jesus followers, life was experienced as one of dislocation. Their decision to follow the path of Christ had led to them being removed forcibly on occasions from their old lives. The ejection of the Christians from the synagogues had already happened by this point, as those Jews who had become Christians had to make new worship practices. They had found themselves thrust suddenly over a fairly short period of time into a new way of being in the world. Because early Christians refused to worship the emperor, when Christianity completed its break from Judaism, the exemptions granted to the Jews within ancient Rome no longer applied to the Christian communities. And so they found that they were no longer able to access the marketplaces because everybody to trade in the market, unless you had an exemption, everybody was expected to make an offering to the emperor cult on your way to the marketplace as part of your transactions. And so if you were a Christian, you had economic hardship. You could no longer trade. They faced economic isolation. They faced financial disadvantage because of their desire to faithfully follow Christ. But it was more than just economics. By worshipping Jesus rather than the pantheon of Greek and Roman gods that the empire dictated they should worship, they then found themselves at odds with their families ostracized from their friends, cut off from their social support networks. 
In many ways, the situation facing Christian converts in Asia Minor in the first century has resonances with the situation facing Christian converts in some countries around the world today. You can think of those places where it is still illegal to convert to Christianity. And so, 1 Peter begins. Verse 1. To the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, they are exiles they're cut off from their culture they are exiles and strangers in their own land and the writer of this little letter is inviting them to understand this experience in the light of the experience of the people of god down the centuries the theological point that is being made here is that the people of god are always called to live in exile from ancient Babylon to the first century world of Asia Minor, dare I say to 21st century London, the people of God are called to be exiles within their own world. And what I think this means for us is that by naming ourselves as the people of Christ, we are emphatically saying that we do not belong to anybody else's agenda. Our allegiance is to Christ and Christ's values and Christ's spirit alone. And in a world of identity politics, competing demands, emerging groups who are fighting online and in the real world for our allegiance, what does it mean for us to be able to say we do not primarily belong to any of those groups? Our allegiance is to Christ. As the 17th century religious radicals in England used to put it, we have no king but Jesus. I refrained from using that quote on the uh, Jubilee weekend, but it was a close thing. We have no king but Jesus. All of society's attempts to enslave us to ideologies of nationalism, consumerism, militarism must be resisted in the name of Christ. And the great insight of the opening line from 1 Peter is that we are called into exile and that there will be consequences we have to face for our obedience to that call. So having addressed the letter to the exiles, the word is then immediately qualified. They are not just exiles, they are the exiles of the dispersion. They are the exiles of the diaspora, to use a slightly different word for it. And this too is a word which calls to mind a Jewish religious concept that the author wants his readers to appropriate to their situation. The Jewish diaspora, or dispersion were those Jews who in the first century lived in places other than the land of Israel itself. So you'd have a Jewish diaspora community in most of the major cities of the first century. And what the Jews found, and indeed continue to find, is that the faith formed in exile in Babylon 
creates a sense of identity for them as the Jewish people of God that can sustain them even when they are distant from their temple and their promised land. It still does this today. This is why Judaism is one of the very few tribal religions to have survived the repeated scattering and persecution of its people in the world. And the words that 1 Peter uses here, diaspora or dispersion, has a sense of sowing about it, of scattering seed on the land. And he's inviting those who experience their life as followers of Christ to be one of exile, to see themselves not just as exiles, but as the seeds of good news scattered and sown in the world to take root, to grow and to flourish, bearing the fruit of the spirit of Christ in whatever context they find themselves, not forever longing for a return to some glorified ancient concept of a holy land but rather taking root in whatever city culture or context they are sown to be faithful and hopeful witnesses that the world as it is can take a step closer to the world as it should be and in an echo of the advice given by the prophet Jeremiah to the Jewish exiles in Babylon those in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia are instructed to seek the welfare of the city to which they have been sent into exile. They are to pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare they will find their welfare. And so, followers of Christ in London, what does it mean for you to seek the welfare of the city to which you have been sent in exile? What does it mean for you to pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare? We are not called to isolate ourselves from this world out there. Rather, we are to become resident aliens rooted in the world, not owned by the world, but definitely in it. This is no mandate for isolationist Christianity, for the kind of communities which shut themselves off from the world to preserve their holiness. Rather, this is a vision of people called together from the world and then sent back to the world for the transformation of the world. The writer reiterates this point more strongly in the second verse of the letter, making absolutely sure of the theological framework on which everything that follows will hang. And this verse is one of the great Trinitarian formulations of the Christian faith, and its force echoes down to us from that early context. He says, firstly, that the exiles of the dispersion are chosen and destined by God the Father. The people of God exist because God has called them into existence. God is their divine parent, their father and mother, their origin of being. And we, like Israel of old, like the Christians of the first century, I believe are called into being primarily by the call of God. We are not a social club. We're not a do-gooder club. We're not a political activist club. We are a church of Christ called together by God. We are the people of God. 
The social stuff and the do-gooder stuff and the political activist stuff, that follows. But that's not why we start. That's not why we're here. That's why we have a service of worship. We belong to a people which are constituted unlike all other peoples. We are not a community gathered around nationality or military might or territorial belonging or conquest or expansion. Neither are we sustained by wars, weapons or warfare. Rather, we are God's people called from among the nations to live as aliens and exiles in the midst of a hostile world. We are defined neither by left nor right, not by color of skin nor colors of flag. We are sustained by grace and peace, called to be a people of grace and a community of peace. We are called to resist narratives of violent struggle or exclusionist politics. We are called to be a different and distinct people in the world, but not of the world. To be a people who embody the politics of peace, to dwell non-violently among the nations as aliens and exiles in their midst, as visible signs of God's intent for grace and peace. But how are we to do this? Well, says the author, we do this because we are sanctified by the Spirit. Our hearts are purified by the Spirit of Christ at work within us, forming us from the inside to be God's people. It's the Spirit of Christ who sustains us through our suffering, the Spirit who protects our inner being through the fires of persecution. The Spirit who reveals to us the truth of salvation that comes to us from beyond our current experience. Sometimes it can seem as if everywhere we turn we are being promised or sold dreams of salvation. From political solutions to bespoke religions to economic miracles, we are surrounded by people promising the earth, but we are enabled to resist the lure of such lies because we are sanctified by the Spirit of Christ who dwells in our hearts and assures us of God's love. And it is in the strength of the Spirit, then, that we are called to obedience to Christ. It is the wind of the Spirit that scatters us in the world as resident aliens and exiles of the dispersion. We are called to an appropriate sense of separation from society, to live by a different script, to embody an alternative narrative. But our call is not to form holy enclaves or to distance ourselves from the world. Rather, our call is to obedience to Christ who came from heaven to the earth. And so we are called to the earth. We are sown among the nations to take root and bear fruit to live and work for the transformation of society, for the good of the city and the culture to which we have been sent. And as political fever continues to dominate our media, as cynicism and disconnectedness threaten to stifle and choke the fledgling shoots of hope, we are called to be rooted and grounded in love. We are called to be witnesses to the truth that there is another way, a better way of being human. We're called to become involved in the processes of our world, to challenge and change them 
into the likeness and kingdom of Christ where our citizenship is already secure. So let's not be afraid to talk politics. And if party politics isn't your thing, or even if it is, then join me in becoming involved in the transformation of society through our church's membership of London citizens. Book a conversation with me or with Lucy. If you're here in the building today, come and talk to us afterwards. But if you're catching up later or you're online, don't let that stop you. Let's start bringing the world as it should be into being in the midst of the world as it is. Or as Jesus may put it, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So join with our work in addressing the situation facing refugees, become an advocate for addressing climate change, take up the banner of our commitment to be, be a Kairos congregation, become more involved in the situation facing Palestinians. A church such as this should be leading the way in addressing these kinds of issues. And in many ways we are, but we can only do so if we hear the call on our lives. We are called to be the people of God, scattered in the world for the good of the world, sanctified by the spirit of Christ to live lives of radical obedience to the Prince of Peace. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Just spend a few moments in quiet as we reflect. And if Sue and Yudoko want to come and join me, that would be great. Morning, Jeff. Are you there? Yep. Okay. I'm here. Which one of you ladies would like to go first? I'm happy to. Yeah. Okay, then. Um, so, I think that there's several things that jumped out to me over the course of the sermon. Um, the first one being that there's very easily identifiable desire that in the midst of this change, in the midst of this postmodern era, or even a post-postmodern era, um, there is a very common impulse to think of a retreat into things that are associated with so-called traditional values. We can see it in the conversation around Roe v. Wade and now the eventual striking down of that. We can see it in the discourse around immigration, the discourse about, around issues of human sexuality, um, and many other, many other things. And I think that there's a tendency, especially when you think of the American church, um, in its interesting and varied manifestations, to associate that desire for a idealized past with endearing to holiness. Whereas what I think Jesus did and what he said and what he was advocating for in the midst of surviving an imperialistic and often very brutal, brutal state, um, and as a, as a Jewish person, um, being deeply oppressed wasn't a retreat into a idealized past 
but the possibility of a far more equal and far more inclusive and, and radically loving and peaceful future. And I think it's a very important distinction to make. I also think that with regards to the challenge I feel myself as a Christian, um, the challenge both posed by the sermon and indeed by Jesus himself, how do we live within our communities, whatever those communities are, whether as you know, Christians in Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church, um, as people of color, as people living in London, um, who love London and love Londoners, again, for all our varied manifestations. And, um, how can we place Jesus at the center of our lives and the center of the way that we live, whilst also being part of those communities and realizing that there's no contradiction in terms there, that if we do follow the example of Jesus in challenging discourses that marginalize, in saying no, in, in placing ourselves, not just in what we say, but in what we do between, um, you know, state ideologies, people who seek to marginalize people amongst our community, um, using our privilege to get in the way and stop that and speaking out, not only as people who have morals, but as people who follow Christ. I think that there's often a gap um, in these discourses. And by leaving that gap, we allow it to be filled by Christians who often get it wrong and believe that more oppression, more marginalization is the way to get closer to God. And it's on us to speak into that and change that narrative because otherwise it will just persist. Thank you very much, Udoka. Jeff? Yeah, I put quite a long comment in the, in the chat. I've been reading the third volume of Michael Watts' The Dissenters, covering the period 1800 to 1900 plus a bit. And a couple of things have stood out. The first was that people like John Clifford had got to the point of seeing God as still incarnate. It's taken me 50 years to get there independently. Churches have been scared of losing their existing congregations by stirring thought. History tells us that the church grows when dissenting thought grows to the point where the churches kick people out. The Jewish synagogues of the first century booted the Christians out. The Anglicans of the 18th century kicked the Methodists out. The conflicts of the English Civil War embraced the descent of the levelers. But the one I really wanted to make is the second point that hit me, and it's a political one. The nonconformists of the late 1800s had a fight over how religion was to be taught in schools. Schools were just sort of becoming a thing. It became a major issue in an election, and Gladstone lost because the radical nonconformists scared the population into voting Tory. If you see shades of what happened to Corbyn in that, then so do I. Just how much do we have to compromise our true position? so that we can actually make progress towards a better world. Okay. I'll put in a shameless plug as well. The online Zoom group will be focusing on this book, book on Wednesday the 27th. Contact Tommaso if you want to take part. Thanks, Jeff. Sue? Yeah, um, I really appreciated what Aduk said. I think what I've been really finding hard, both recently, but also like probably over my entire life 
is how to persuade people when you want to speak truth to power. Um, and I mean, that's why I appreciate the work of citizens and the training I've done, because I think it, it does provide good training about how to persuade people. And I think as someone who inhabits very privileged circles, um, you know, attending university, which is, has one of the lowest state school proportions um, of all universities, and also, yeah, just, just how to have those conversations um, and I think no matter how much training you do and how much you talk to people, there will still be people who you, you know, feel like you're never making any progress. Um, and I find that really challenging, but speaking to maybe older people who over the course of their lives have changed their minds, I think I do find that quite encouraging because me speaking to the other 22 and 23 year olds now might not feel like it's making a difference, but hopefully with some life experience, um, I can, f you know, I feel like I might be planting the seeds there. Okay, thank you very much. Um, have you got your prayers with you? Oh, okay. I thought there was a hymn first. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna, I'm thinking we'll uh, just sing one hymn before we close. Um, so if you bring your prayers into session, we will do that next. But I, I was, as when Simon started, the, there was a hymn that came to mind on Christ the solid rock, I stand all other ground, his sinking sand. It's just something from my, from my past that just keeps splashing through. And I'm thinking we need to be sort of, uh, yeah, we need to be shifting, but not, um, but not moving. So shakers and movers, perhaps. God, we want to thank you for our time here today, for our beautiful space and that we have the opportunity to gather. We pray for those in our community facing illness that has meant they are not with us today. We pray for those around the world facing religious persecution, that they may have freedom. We pray for the trans community, facing increasing hostility from politicians and the media. We pray for liberation and that our politicians' minds may be changed to act with kindness and justness. We pray for those in authority in our country, that they may work for the common good and be able to effectively solve the problems facing us, particularly inflation and the cost of living. We pray for the campaigners and activists who try to keep our government accountable. We pray for the work of London citizens we pray for unity in our communities and that we may find strength in numbers. 
We pray for the workers who work for London citizens, that they may be effective in their training and inspire unity in our communities. We pray for the people of the world facing civil unrest, that all people may stay safe and face a promising future with equal opportunity. We take some time in silence to add our own prayers. Amen. As we part, be encouraged, stand fast in the truth, testify to the grace of God, and peace be with you all who are in Christ and in, to all that you meet. Amen.